Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 67 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me is... This is Michelle Tarvox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes to your ears with discussions of some of the latest research floating around in the world of clinical dermatology. What's floating around up there in the Dermosphere? Michelle, mm-hmm. how are you feeling? I have some kind of a winter um, malady that is not COVID, so I'm a scarce stuffed up, but decidedly not dealing with the vid, possibly thanks to my booster shot, but still, I'm a little phlegmy, so I'm sorry for the hair. And you're wearing your pajamas. And I'm wearing my pajamas, yes. <laughs> and I know that this is a podcast and our listeners can't see you, but uh, Michelle's pajamas are very classic. They're like button-up, long-sleeve... Um, you know, Eugene there's, Levy. Um, there's, yes, Levy white Brown. piping, white piping. They're navy blue with little white polka dots. It's very, you know, very uh, classic. Yeah, you could also perhaps do karate in there. <laughs> so I want to talk first about um, jack inhibitors for alopecia areata. And the, one reason I want to talk about this is because we're all quite excited about the potential of JAK inhibitors in a variety of dermatologic conditions, but so far, none of the systemic ones have been approved for any conditions within our wheelhouse. But I find myself talking about JAK inhibitors to parents with some frequency because some children and adults also have alopecia areata that is quite refractory to everything we currently have, and partly that's because what we currently have kind of sucks for alopecia areata. And... This review is from July of 2021 out of Clinical, Cosmetic, and Investigational Dermatology, and I thought did a nice job of kind of summarizing everything that's been published up to this point. And shout out to Dr. Vanderhoof, my senior partner here at the University of Utah in Pediatric Dermatology, who recommended this one. The author is Carrie Ann Dillon, who seems to be out of the UK and also has an appointment at St. George's University School of Medicine in Granada. And the title is A Comprehensive Literature Review of Jack Inhibitors in the Treatment of Alopecia Areata. Okay, so the upshot is as follows. The numerous upshots. Michelle, I'm going to hit you with my best upshots. Jack That's Inhibitors. <laughs> What's that? That's pretty good. Oh, yes. Yeah, so hit glad you with we the upshots. Dig it <laughs> so Jack Inhibitors block the JAK-STAT pathway which is important in a lot of cytokine signaling, including T lymphocytes. We had a longer discussion about the function of these drugs in episode 59. So if you want to reach back there and talk a little bit more about it. And currently, the literature about JAK inhibitors for alopecia areata is limited to case reports and case series. The largest is of 90 patients. And there are some pretty dramatic results reported, but there are no controlled trials yet, though I believe there are some ongoing. And in general, patients seem to have about a 70% response rate, at least a partial response rate. Not everybody gets 100% better. Topical JAK inhibitors just don't seem to work very well based on the published literature to this point, though I do wonder about their use in children. I think one reason that topical JAK inhibitors haven't been working very well is because it's kind of a long way from the outside world into the hair follicle on the scalp, and it's hard for them to penetrate down there. Yeah. But children have a 
thinner dermis and epidermis on the scalp than adults, so I wonder if there's more utility there. Sadly, most patients relapse when you stop the drug. So people have been on it for, you know, six or seven months, and then they stop it, and usually they lose their hair again within a month or two. Though nobody has yet studied what happens if you leave people on the drug for like one to three years and then stop it and see what happens. The good news is that they seem safe. So some patients have had some mild URIs, mild UTIs, and some mild lab abnormalities. So it's nice that they seem safe. However, there's been this recent kerfuffle about the safety of JAK inhibitors, uh, thanks to the FDA. Are you familiar with this warning, Michelle? I have heard about it, and I also love the use of the word kerfuffle there. I think that's one of my favorite words. So in a rheumatoid arthritis trial, which is something these drugs are approved for, there was an increased risk of serious heart-related events, such as heart attack or stroke, as well as cancer, blood clots, and death... Dun, dun, dun. with tofacitinib, which is a JAK inhibitor, compared with TNF-alpha inhibitors. There are some caveats. So patients in this trial were required to be at least 50 years old and have at least one risk factor for heart disease. So they might be a very different population than the patients we would think to use JAK inhibitors in. Mm-hmm. But this trial also found that patients on JAK inhibitors also had a higher rate of lymphomas, And in current or past smokers, they had a higher rate of cancers overall, especially lung cancer. This might be because JAK inhibitors affect NK cells, which are important in tumor surveillance. So those are some important warnings to keep in mind if you're thinking about using these, you know, currently off-label in some of our patients. Though, again, how generalizable those warnings are to our patient population is a little unclear. This article also pointed out that JAK inhibitors are expensive. You know, mm-hmm. they're not even approved right now, but the estimated cost is probably about $50,000 per year. So compared that with our most expensive current treatment for alopecia areata, which according to this author is cyclosporin, which is about $1,400 a year. It has some other problems, of course. So if I have to put somebody on systemics for a long time for alopecia areata, I'm usually using methotrexate. So I don't know how much that is per year, but I guess a less than $1,400. So the difference is striking. And it's important to think about that because, of course, alopecia areata is not a life-threatening condition, though you don't have to convince me that it can affect some people's quality of life very significantly. If you wanted to try this, the dosing for tofacitinib, you might consider 10 milligrams daily to start and increase by 5 milligrams every month if there's no response up to 20 milligrams daily and divide the dosing BID in general. Michelle, do you have any patients on these medicines? I have some patients on the topical versions. Um, Getting them on the oral versions is prohibitively expensive for most of the patients. Uh, I know that a lot of the literature, the original case reports even, I think came out of patients who had incidental alopecia areata that were being treated for other indications with the um, JAK inhibitors. But it, it can be effective topically. I've seen some patients, especially children, uh, make an improvement. I wonder if it isn't for the reasons you stated earlier. But you're right that, you know, it is something you have to continue through the, you know, period of flare or whatever for the alopecia areata. The other hard part about alopecia areata is that it's an unpredictable disease, right? So some patients might experience an episodic flare and We don't know when it's over necessarily, so it's a very challenging thing to manage. I have one adult patient on tofacitinib for alopecia areata, and he took a lot of initiative. He called his insurance company himself and got it approved, and 
he went from basically being bald as Professor Xavier to now looking like a greaser. He has yeah. enviable hair. He is doing <laughs> awesome. Um, I have another patient who discovered that there's a version that at least claims to be tofacitinib from Bangladesh that some people from like the alopecia support groups have been noticing. And so there are people out there who are pretty desperate. There's a few other tidbits that came out of this article. About overall, two-thirds of alopecia areata patients have complete regrowth within five years. Those numbers are a little worse than I expected. I usually feel like people, the average patient with alopecia areata loses one to three two-centimeter alopecia patches on their scalp when it comes back within a year. Um, the hair cycle. So the hair cycle is worth knowing, perhaps, and uh, might be billable. That is the pimping bell, highlighting material that is especially pimpable or testable. So the human hair cycle has some phases. First, there's antigen, which is the growth phase. Then there's catagen, which is regression and follicular involution. And then there's telogen, where the follicle just sits there and the hair itself falls out. And then we restart back over again in antigen with growth. Um, in alopecia areata, the damage occurs in the antigen phase, apparently. We know that alopecia areata affects quality of life, like I mentioned before. This author points out that factors have, that have been shown to contribute to low quality of life scores include age under 50, being female, having widespread involvement, so over 25% hair loss, as well as various other stressors like familial stress, job-related stress, and psychological distress overall. So young women who lose a lot of hair, unsurprisingly, seem to have worse quality of life scores. Interestingly, 78% of alopecia areata patients have at least one psychological comorbidity. Mm. And finally, they report one case report where baricitinib, a jack inhibitor, improved alopecia areata and also the symptoms of candle syndrome, which is a very rare genodermatosis. Candle stands for chronic atypical neutrophilic dermatosis with lipodystrophy and elevated temperature and is caused by mutations in PSMB8. Interesting. So there's what we know about jack inhibitors so far. They seem to work, but we don't have great data. They seem to be safe, but there are some warnings. They're very expensive. No caveats about that one. They just are. Intriguing. I like it. So we're talking about loss of things. I think we always like to avoid losing things, things that are important to looking our best, like our hair and possibly also our bone. So um, making the rounds in some of the dermosphere is a discussion on a very interesting set of articles, a response and then a response to the response. So it's like a remix of the remix um, from an article out of the Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Journal from August of 2020 with the reply and then the reply to the reply um, having been published in June of 2021. So this is out of the cosmetic section of that journal, and it's entitled Unexpected Bone Resorption in Mentum Induced by the Soft Tissue Filler Hyaluronic Acid, a Preliminary Retrospective Cohort Study in Asian Patients. The chief authors are Zhao Shuang Guo and Zhao Lei Jin, and they did not indicate any conflicts of interest. So these um, physicians work in China and are... Um, in the sort of orthognathic surgery field. So they're doing a lot of work reconstructively on the lower face. 
So that means that they are looking at a lot of patients who desire changes to the lower face, as well as looking a lot of scans of those patients. So they wanted to discuss the fact that um, soft tissue fillers, especially hyaluronic acid, is very commonly used and is considered safe and efficacious. Bone resorption in the mentum has been observed and reported previously by this group um, in 2018 in eight patients. The mentum is like the chin, right? The chin, yes. There's the all sorts chin, of chin. the chinny the menti, chin. Menti, mentum. Yes, minty, hopefully not minty. Well, sometimes minty if you're using mouthwash or chewing gum. Um, so evident bone resorption in the mentum had been observed by this group previously. So they wanted to look retrospectively at the CT scans of patients who had or had not had mentum augmentation with HA fillers. They did a body mass index and sex matched control group and that was selected randomly from patients undergoing different procedures that would also have CT scans done preoperatively. They looked at something called the semi-mandibular bone resorption index, which is the ratio of bone thickness in the incisive fossa. So if you like put your two fingers on your incisors on your lower jaw and then pull your fingers down towards your jaw bones angle, down towards your mandibular, sorry, not the angle, down towards the mandibular rim, you'll kind of feel little indentations there. So those We're are your incisive We're both doing it fossa. right now, listeners. Yes. We'll have to do a picture of the incisive fossa posture. It looks and so like we're pensive. Yes, thinking very hard, massaging our mentum. Um, so those little incisive fossa, so comparing that to the mandibular symphysis, symphysis, which would be if you put one finger right at the very point of your mandible. Like so a just cleft one chin. Finger, like a cleft chin point. Yes, that would be your nice little mandibular symphysis. So looking at the ratio of the bone thickness in those two areas. And so basically the more... Um, difference there is from one. So like the lower that number is, the more bone resorption has happened in the incisive fossa, if that makes sense. So if your incisive fossa is one and your um, mandibular symphysis is one, then your bone resorption insects is one, which would be nothing. If your um, incisive fossa is like 0.5 and your mandibular symphysis was like one, then your bone resorption insects would be 50% or 0.5. So that makes sense. It's a Why weird... would our bone be resorbed? Well, that's the question they intend to address in this article. They looked at injection volume, interval, and the number of injections, product, and complications. So they looked from January 2014 to June of 2019, and they found 80 patients. So they called this 160 cases because they looked at each incisive fossa as an individual case. And then they matched that with 80 controls. They, call, they calculated the bone resorption index in the hyaluronic acid injection cohort versus the control population and found that the bone resorption index was lower, meaning that the change between the incisive fossa and the mandibular symphysis was greater. And the controls, oh, sorry, it was, um, my bad, hold on. So the um, injection cohort was significantly lower in the controls than the um, than the patients. So the patients had the greater resorptive index. So the patients who got hyaluronic acid filler in that region seem to have more resorption of bone. And resorption yes. is like a fancy word for dissolving or bone eroding or going away. Yeah. So the patients that had the hyaluronic acid inde injection cohort, they had um, like 75 0.25 plus or minus 10 was their bone resorption index versus the control population, which was 82.86, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? 
resorbed more bone if you got hyaluronic acid. Well, now I'm terrified. Okay, so the don't be too terrified. There are caveats. Okay, so the the um, patients that were injected with greater than or equal to one mL per session were more susceptible to bone erosion compared to patients that were injected with less, and there wasn't any significant difference between one versus multiple injection groups. But the short injection interval um, showed a trend that was not statistically significant towards greater bone resorption. No aesthetic difference was realized, so the patients didn't have any physical findings that they identified, and these are cosmetic patients who are paying a lot of attention. So there was no significant cosmetic difference between the two groups, even to the patients who are cosmetically sensitized. So that's an important point to highlight. But they did want to look at the fact that hyaluronic acid injection could induce bone resorption in the mentum, aesthetics were not impaired, and tooth health was not impaired. Uh, severity of bone loss was positively correlated with the injection volume per time. So greater injection volumes equaled more resorption. And um, there was that trend with shorter injection interval, although that was not um, statistically significant. Now, I do think it is useful for us to look at literature out of different traditions and practices than our own. So this is out of plastic and reconstructive surgery. These are oral maxillofacial surgeons. And I think one of the reasons they thought to look at this is that they're, this population of surgeons are people who are more likely to do chin implants. And there's a known phenomenon that chin augmentation with implants can actually cause resorption of bone in the mentum. So this is something that is well known in their literature. Because this is a procedure we don't perform that often, I think that's something that's probably not at the forefront of our knowledge. I have never heard of a chin implant before. Oh, there are implants for almost every part of the face that you want to enhance. So there's chin implants, there are cheek implants, there are even like jaw angle implants. Um, some places I think even have implants for the frontal bone in, in cultures that have a prominence of that as a desirable beauty trait. So lots of different um, implants and you know things that can be inserted and placed. But so this was an interesting thing for them to look at. So they also pointed out and highlighted differences between Western society and Asian society and the ways fillers are placed. And I think that is pertinent with this article. So again, these are these authors are out of Beijing People's Republic of China. And if anybody, if you've been on social media at all in the past couple of years, you have probably seen a video of a lovely young appearing sort of triangular sh face shaped elfin appearing young Asian woman kind of undoing makeup, and then all of a sudden she takes off the rest of her makeup and her face is completely different. Um, so this is actually being accomplished using an app that's called the, the My2 app. So it's spelled M-E-I-T-U if you want to download and play with this on your own phone. And it creates a very triangular face shape. So I'm actually going to My2 my own face, and I will put it up on our page so you guys can see what I'm talking about. But this has enhanced the desire for a very pointed and um, prominent chin as a beauty trait in some areas of Asia. And so they talk about how in the West, we usually use soft tissue augmentation, soft tissue filler augmentation for facial rejuvenation and volume loss. And that facial contouring is more of a priority for Asian patients, partially because Asian cephalometric studies um, kind of tend to suggest a decreased chin projection compared to Caucasians. Uh, just as a genetic trait that might be more common in certain patient populations. And that decreased chin projection, which means kind of like a receding jaw, is perceived as an unattractive trait in Asian culture. And so having enhancement of the, of the chin, having increased mental projection, 
can be desirable as a beauty trait, which may indicate a stronger preference for larger amounts of filler to be placed in that location because there is this desire for that inverted triangle, which I think a lot of us are trying to achieve the inverted triangle, but there is a significant, um, I think, overemphasis in some sense of that face shape in the beauty culture that's currently very prominent, partially because of this My2 app and other similar social media tools. You had a question? Nope. It's just interesting stuff that I almost never think about since I don't do any cosmetics. Yeah. So trying to achieve that projected three-dimensional contour. There are anatomical um, differences and cultural disparities. So often in Asian culture, um, in this time frame that we're looking at right now, these kinds of augmentation procedures can be performed in a younger population and can be also regarded as very important as a part of lower face aesthetic contouring. So when you compare that with sliding genioplasty or implants, the injectable fillers are technically safer. You know, they don't have to go through anesthesia. It can cause three-dimensional chin shaping with satisfaction for patients with mild to moderate micrognathia. So micrognathia, again, is sort of a recessive chin, a smaller chin. So in 2018, this group reported nine cases of mental bone erosion with hyaluronic acid filler injection. And then after that period of time, they've continued to observe and found that this phenomenon was not really sporadic. So they did this retrospective study. And so they had all these patients that they kind of they collected, which we kind of already spoke about. They found patients that had CT scans that had had the hyaluronic acid filler versus patients who had not. And then they compared their imaging studies and their bone resorption index to each other. They also had um, contacted the patients to determine if they recalled any technical um, details about the procedure. Now, a small percentage of them did. Only 30 out of the 80 had good recollection of the sort of details of the procedure, which is sort of understandable. A lot of cosmetic patients, um, if this is becomes as commonplace as going to get your teeth cleaned, you know, so you can have a little bit less of attention to detail with that. Um, they also excluded patients that had had other kinds of augmentation, such as autologous fat, alloplastic implants, or polyacrylamide gel or genioplasty. And so they did that um, semimandibular bone resorption index, and we already kind of discussed how that works. This was measured by three, depend three different authors, and the results were averaged, so it wasn't just one person measuring it. And the patients were also asked to rate their satisfaction with their previous hyaluronic acid injection procedures into three categories, not satisfied, satisfied, or very satisfied, and the influence of bone erosion on aesthetics, which is does not realize, feels like it did influence things, or largely influenced using a three-level scale. And the interesting thing was that the patients really didn't feel like the bone resorption caused any cosmetic changes to their face. So there wasn't any notable difference in the patient's faces, even though these changes were appreciable by radiography. The patient population was very significantly women, 77 women and three men. And then the controls were all age and sex matched. So this is an association currently. An association, it's not like yes. they have pre and post CT scans. They do not. So could there be something else that's different about these patients where they appear to have more bone resorption? Well, I think there definitely could. You know, these are patients that were collected. They were going through some kind of facial procedure. Um, you could say that patients who have presented for a sliding genioplasty because they liked the results of hyaluronic acid filler may have already been predisposed to have some kind of bone resorption or to have less pronounced of a chin. And because we don't have pre-hyaluronic acid treatment scans, we don't know if those fossae were already present or if there were similar changes. And that's something that the reply to the reply 
to the reply saying actually kind of points out. Um, they also use some words that I think is fun to know. Uh, for example, they talked about the fact that in the patients who had good recollection of the procedure, the fillers were generally placed at the pagonion. So the pagonion is the craniometric point that is the most forward projection point of the anterior surface of the chin. So if you're touching the interior surface of your chin, that is your pogonian, which I think is kind of fun. Um, let's see. So they did have, a, like I said, 33 patients that had partial detail recollection of their fillers, including like brand and how much and where things were placed. And they kind of utilized that to undergo some subset analysis. They had some patients that had large volume injection per time with greater than one ml per time injected. In those patients, which was 13 patients, so they quantified that as 26 cases because they was looking at each incisor um, depression there, they did find that there was an increased risk of bone resorption in patients that had higher volume injection. They had six patients, so a small sample size, with short injection interval, and 11 patients that had a longer injection interval with multiple injections. There was a trend towards the shorter injection interval, so more frequent than every six months, causing more bone resorption but not any um, st statistical significance to that. And then they go over a couple of different cases where they actually show the imaging as well as intraoperative photographs demonstrating the intraoperative appearance of the patients with the um, kind of erosion of the incisional fossae, as well as some areas where there's retained hyaluronic acid product or potentially granuloma. That's a question that comes up in the, um, in the discussion. So the couple of questions that they raised was there's no really definitive conclusion as to why this happens, but they posit that the causes are pressure-related. Bone, bone erosion in their patient cohort is common following implants, so the um, kind of more permanent implants to the mentum for augmentation. You can have bone resorption following that. Soft tissue filler could exist only temporarily and intermittently, but if you do it frequently, it may mimic a similar pressure effect to the placed uh, implants. And the equilibrium between osteoclasts and osteoblasts may be impaired by the affinity of hyaluronic acid to osteoclasts. So this was kind of fascinating. I looked into this, and hyaluronic acid actually influences the behavior of osteoclast cells, and it depends on whether it's low or high molecular weight. The, the fillers we tend to use tend to be high molecular weight fillers, and they may have a different interaction with osteoclasts than low molecular weight fillers. And then they also talked about labial incompetence and hyperactivity of the mentalis potentially playing a role. Osteoclasts break down bone, while yes. osteoblasts build it up. Yes, like the iconoclasts, things that clast are like things that like break things down. So we talk about leukocytoclastic debris, which is like neutrophil fragments, things that are broken apart. Uh, I think one of the reasons that they have noticed this phenomenon is because large volumes of filler are more commonly used in the mentum in this patient population. They uh, cited a Asia-Pacific consensus group talking about the recommended injection volume for chin apex augmentation in Asian patients is one to three milliliters, whereas in Caucasian patients, it's 0.4 to 0.9 milliliters, so significantly less product in these different patient populations. They um, thought that this might also cause changes because of a distant sense of beauty influenced by the culture. And I, I like the way that they, they phrase that. So the different anatomical characteristics among different ethnicities and also potentially the distant sense of beauty influenced by culture, meaning that there's a cultural norm for beauty that's being established based off of a different patient, uh, different human population that has different physical markers. And there's a bigger distance to travel for people who genetically have a 
different anatomy. And so there's this sort of westernization of beauty that may be causing people to seek procedures to modify their appearance more significantly to achieve that standard. And that might actually be one of the reasons why the larger volumes are used and might be potentially more risky for these patients. So I think that that was interesting. They also talked about the fact that a lot of the filler is placed on bone or subdermally on the chin. These areas of injection are thought to be safer because there tends to be less vascular structures in these areas. And, you know, considering the possibility of multi-layer filling is a possibility to consider, but you have to be thoughtful about the fact that you do risk the possibility of injecting into a vessel here. So of course, like any good author, they recommend further study and they want to, um, in, they want to kind of prescribe a little bit of caution to people performing this procedure on patients and discuss the use of different volumes. So there was a reply to this in the same journal, um, Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, in June of 2021. So the authors of this reply, um, who are Wan Li and Yu Jung Guang out of South Korea, pointed out a few things. They wanted to know if the procedures were performed at the author's clinics, um, and if not, how they understood the technical characteristics of these, if there were any other fillers used, such as polyacrylamide gel, polyglecoprone, calcium, or polyolactic acid, collagen, or liquid silicone. They also wanted to discuss the possibility that if you looked at individual patients, the bone resorption index was actually worse. So you actually had uh, more significant bone resorption in some of the control patients versus some of the some of the patients that had hyaluronic acid filler. Now, this is not a way we generally look at data, but they're kind of, I think, pointing out that there might be some baseline characteristics of patients that just tend towards having some resorption in those incisural fossae, even if they've never had hyaluronic acid filler. So there were several patients. Um, there were 11 patients in the control group that had greater levels of bone resorption than patients in the hyaluronic acid group. It's just when you look at the um, specific averages, the patients that had filler had more bone resorption than the patients that did not. They did suggest that when you have these kinds of groups with this sort of variability, a different analysis using something such as equal variance could help account for the possibility of that sort of variability and allow for a more in-depth assessment. And I thought that was a good argument. They did also point out a um, error in one of the uh, legends for one of the figures and the authors in the reply do kind of assent to the fact that that was an error. They thank them for the correction. And then they also wondered if there weren't granulomas, which it, one of the pictures does look like there's a granuloma, and you know, a granuloma would potentially exert more force on the bone, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the reply to the reply, also very interesting, because this is a study that came out of China, the only approved fillers in this area are collagen and hyaluronic acid. Now, I know practicing in the United States that whether or not something is approved or not does not mean that that's the only thing that's getting injected. So we don't really for sure know what was injected, uh, but I think that there is fairly significant evidence that it probably was hyaluronic acid. They also pointed out the fact that um, some patients might develop bone resorption independently, and they point out that you know this is something that's hard to assess because patients don't routinely undergo imaging before they have any kind of cosmetic procedure unless you're doing a significant reconstruction of bone as is done with orthognathic surgery. And they assess the um, sort of 
question of the granulomas, they, they felt that this was more related to um, technique of kind of removing the hyaluronic acid and demonstrating it. I thought that was interesting. And they, of course, also offer the idea that they want to do some animal studies for this. So I think that this is an important thing to think about. I think that taking the information that we glean from other specialties is very helpful for us to make sure we're not missing and having blind spots to things that could impact our patients. I think that there is the possibility for pressure-induced bone erosion, and I think that this is something that we know is a potential phenomenon, especially if it's occluded under a thick muscle like the mentalis. I think large volume injections in general are something that need to be approached with some thought and caution. There is a significant trend towards these really impressive body modifications with filler. You may have seen some pictures where people have really sudden, significant changes to their profile, both at the chin and also at the mandibular angle. Definitely something that needs further study, uh, but makes me feel better about my technique of usually injecting very small amounts of filler. I don't like to do huge volumes on patients just because I think that, you know, we don't 100% understand what happens with these fillers. There are some studies that show us that they don't really dissolve necessarily. They just kind of move around. And so using filler a little bit more judiciously might be the most safe approach, but very interesting article. Well, thanks for giving us your take on it too, since you inject hyaluronic acid and I don't. Well, look at the breadth of dermatology here. We're going to go from cosmetics to the emergency room. So last... Hopefully not because of the cosmetics, which can be another story. Hopefully not. So last episode, I dragged out one of my sort of favorite historical articles. And this is another one. So I just have a list of about 20 articles that I put a gold star on because I just really like them and thought I should talk about them on the podcast in, you know, maybe one an episode. So this is out of 2017, out of the JAD, and it's called A Predictive Model for Diagnosis of Lower Extremity Cellulitis, a Cross-Sectional Study. The authors include Adam Raff and Arash Mastagimi. Um, Dr. Mastagimi, by the way, also has a dermatology podcast called Topical. Michelle and I were guests on there not too long ago. It's available on both of our streams and ours. It's one of our bonus episodes. So this is just a really fun and clever article, I think. So it's about, quote, pseudocellulitis. So basically, pseudocellulitis is something that looks like cellulitis. Somebody diagnoses it as cellulitis, but it ain't cellulitis. And it's a major issue. Only two-thirds of patients diagnosed with lower extremity cellulitis actually have it, and this leads to a variety of problems. Some unnecessary hospital admissions, exposures to unnecessary antibiotics with their attendant risks of adverse effects, allergic reactions, bacterial resistance, delayed treatment of the real diagnosis, and of course costs to the healthcare system because of all of that, which is estimated at 200 to $500 million annually. In COVID world, $500 million, I guess, just doesn't sound like very much anymore, but uh, it would be nice to save it. <laughs> And so these authors used science to create a scoring system, primarily for use in the emergency room, to decide whether or not a given patient is likely to have specifically lower extremity cellulitis versus one of its mimics. And they used data from a retrospective review of 259 adult patients at their emergency room um, at Brigham and Women's who were given an initial diagnosis of lower extremity cellulitis. So, of course, the best thing to come out of this is their actual scoring system, which is called the ALT-70 score, so A-L-T hyphen 70. And A-L-T and 70 stand for the metrics that are included in the score. So A is for asymmetric, L is for leukocytosis, T is for tachycardia, and 70 is for age over 70. 
So if the flare, the rash is asymmetric, so just on one leg, you get three points. If you are age 70 or greater, you get two points. If your white count is 10 or greater, you get one point. And if your heart rate is 90 or higher, then you get a point for that as well. So total number of points possible is seven. And they found the best predictors occur um, with cutoffs at five and three. So if you get score them all up and you get zero, one or two, it's probably not cellulitis. Think again. If you get a score of five, six or seven, it's probably cellulitis and you should treat. And if it's three or four in the middle somewhere, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Consider dermatology consult. So if the score is below three, so zero, one, or two, they have an 83% likelihood of having pseudocellulitis. Score of five plus have an 82% likelihood of actually having cellulitis. And three or four, we said maybe consult dermatology consultation in both the inpatient and outpatient setting has been shown in other studies to improve diagnostic accuracy of cellulitis. So I like the ALT-70 model. Um, the factors that didn't end up being relevant are kind of interesting, and they include comorbidities that are normally thought to be associated with cellulitis. So having a history of cellulitis in the past didn't seem to make a difference. Cutaneous barrier disruption, like having ulcers. Tinea pedis, lymphedema, venous insufficiency, dermatitis, malignancy, all didn't seem to become relevant once they were crunched through science, and this science. model emerged. The exclusion criteria are probably also important because it relates to how generalizable these findings are and the model is. So first of all, these were all adults, so can't use it in our pediatric patients necessarily. And I, that thought occurred to me yesterday because we had a patient in the ED who was 10 years old and had, quote, cellulitis just on one leg. So that would be three points right there. So exclusions included if the patient had cellulitis in other parts of the body, as well as the lower extremities, if they had a penetrating injury, a recent surgery, a burn, if they had indwelling hardware at the site, a history of osteomyelitis, or if they had diabetic ulcer. So perhaps the ALT-70 model is not quite generalizable to patients with those conditions. Further work by this group has also shown the ALT-70 predictive model to be valid at 24 and 48 hours after initial uh, scoring as well. I like the Alt-70 score. This was 2017, so um, my hope that is that Dr. Mastagimi and friends are still doing some work on it, and we can use it ourselves when we get consulted, especially in the ED, and share it with some of our colleagues in emergency medicine and in urgent care to further improve the diagnostic accuracy of possible cellulitis. I like it. I think anything that helps you evaluate patients under those kinds of circumstances is useful. So... I'm trying to find a segue to this next article, and I'm still... Well, I'll let you think a little bit. One reason I especially liked this was the, the unilateral thing. So bilateral lower extremity cellulitis is like a joke among dermatologists, <laughs> because basically there's, there's almost never any such thing as bilateral lower extremity cellulitis. That's almost always stasis dermatitis, especially if it has allergic contact dermatitis superimposed on it. And you can tell that from the scoring system, how if it's unilateral, that's already three points, which gets you all the way past pseudocellulitis and into the gray zone by itself. I remember when I was a medical student on inpatient rounds, we had this patient. He was obese. He was probably 42 or something. And they were like, yeah, this guy's been in the hospital for a week for bilateral lower extremity cellulitis. We've tried like three different powerful IV antibiotics and it's not really getting much better. And I thought to myself, wow, this poor guy, 
Mm. I hope he gets better somehow. Mm-hmm. But now I'm like, oh my God, he probably just had stasis dermatitis. Derm mm-hmm. consult, anyone? That is one of my saddest consult moments when you're like, okay, well, we'll come make sure that you don't kill this person with antibiotics. But I think that, you know, it's it's always important for us to, like, so we're just talking about seeing our own holes in our vision and helping other people see the holes in their vision. You know, we all work as a team. Very important. I like this. Um, so you mentioned unilateral versus bilateral lower extremity cellulitis. Did you know, Luke, that 78% of people have a preference to chew on our dominant side? I did not know that. Yes, I didn't know you. So we know we have like a handedness, right? And most people realize they have a footedness too, especially if you've ever tried to learn dance moves. I like to say that my left foot is about two grades behind my right foot in terms of learning dance steps. Hey, and how then, come elephants can't dance? Why? Because they have two left feet. Ah, ha, 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 ha. I like that. That's pretty good. Um, so, so we do have a dominant chewing side as well. So we have handedness, footedness, and jawedness. Jawedness. And so that can cause problems with bruxism. We're going to look at the masseter muscle and its role in facial contouring, aging, and quality of life. A literature review out of the Journal of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery from January of 2019 by authors Rawa Amukatar and Sabrina Fabi. And they're out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Bruxism is like... Grinding your teeth, right? Grinding the teeth, yes. So masseter muscle hypertrophy can present as enlargement of the masseter muscle and can be associated with a square-angled lower face. Some people find this to be a attractive feature, and I think in some settings, people actually are enhancing the mandibular angle a little bit more frequently for men than, than in women, but I've seen it also definitely for women as well. And this can potentially be associated also with dental maxillary attrition, um, problems with maxillary mandibular bone resorption with overpressure from the muscle and accelerated aging process of the lower face. So pressure, we know, modifies bone. We also know that lack of strain on bone causes osteoporosis. So it's like this double-edged sword where our bones are constantly remodeling themselves. We like to think of our skeleton as a static thing, but it very much is not one. This study wanted to look at the efficacy and safety of botulinum toxin type A in contouring the masseter and the impact on quality of life in the aging process and its role in full face rejuvenation. They did this through a PubMed search, looking on articles of masseter treatment with botulinum toxin type A, masseter muscle hypertrophy, and the aging process of the lower face, and summarized the key findings. We want to talk about first that botulinum toxin A can be injected into the lower posterior aspect of the masseter muscle, and we're going to talk about where the safety zone is for that later. And that treatment can be used to decrease muscle bulk, reshape the lower face, and decrease symptoms that might affect quality of life, such as pain and symptoms of grinding or clenching, as well as potentially uh, damage to the temporal mandibular joint, and to decrease shear stress on maxillary and mandibular bones, and potentially prevent tooth loss and progressive bone resorption of the lower face. So we're talking about Botox for the masseter muscle. Mm -hmm. Botox to the masseter. And the masseter muscle is the one that's primarily responsible for chewing, right? Yes. So So you can like feel it if you put your finger right, you know, push it against your buckle cheek and start chewing. It's that bulgy part, right? Mm hmm. If you do it too frequently, you can get masseter muscle hypertrophy. If any of you know who Flula is, he's the lead singer for the um, kind of rival group in Pitch Perfect to the movie. Um, Flula has amazing masseter muscle hypertrophy. I'll put a picture of that up on our Facebook page too. It's it's impressive. So um, 
This kind of problem, masseter muscle hypertrophy, is most commonly observed between the ages of 20 and 40 and is not gender specific. It's not often seen in older patients because dental deterioration inhibits the ability to clench or grind teeth, which makes sense. So as you age, your teeth also age and they become more fragile. Clenching the teeth may potentially cause some problems with either cracking of the tooth or pain in the dentition that would sort of disincentivize muscle clenching. If it happens unilaterally, you can have lower facial asymmetry, aesthetic disharmony, as well as dysfunction of the joint. It can be asymptomatic, but it's often associated with bruxism, which is the grinding of the teeth, pain, and functional impairment. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so the cause of... yeah. I just Googled Flula, uh-huh. a Google image search, and I can tell you that the masseter is not the only hypertrophied muscle on this specimen. I mean, he's, he's an impressive human person, but I'll, I'll show pictures. So anyway, the cause of the hypertrophy of the masseter muscle can be attributed to multiple factors, including emotional stress, chronic bruxism, sleep bruxism, and mesoteric hyperfunction. Excessive working of the masseter can cause hypertrophy of the lower face with a square angled jaw that can be masculinizing for a female face and make the face appear bottom heavy. It can also cause myofacial pain as well as cosmetic concerns. Other treatments for masseteric hypertrophy have included partial surgical resection, which sounds insane, reduction, modeling osteectomy of the mandibular angle or the masseter muscle. All of these have disadvantages, including the risks of general anesthesia, postoperative hemorrhage, edema, hematoma infection, scarring, and facial nerve damage. Complications of these procedures are not negligible. So other treatments such as occlusal splints and muscle relaxants have been used without too much success. So people started to attempt to denervate the muscle with Botox um, in the 90s, actually, which is kind of exciting. Bruxism is relatively common. It's estimated that 85 to 90% of the population will at some point grind or clench their teeth to some degree. So it's relatively common. I think everybody grinds and clenches their teeth sometimes. In this article, they also interestingly point out that there's a little bit more commonality of bruxism in Western culture than there is in Asian culture. And I don't know if that's like a cultural phenomenon. I remember reading a lot about clenching jaws in different literature, like when people are upset or frustrated or demonstrating anger, they clench their jaw in our literature. And I don't know if that's something that is represented as much in Asian culture. That might be a difference as to why we behave the way we do with that particular muscle. When you use Botox to the any muscle, you get weakness by preventing acetylcholine release into the synaptic cleft at the cholinergic nerves within striated muscle, as well as smooth muscle and autonomic exocrine glands, such as our sweat glands, which is why you can use Botox for hyperhidrosis. This denervation prevents muscle contraction. We call this chemodenervation. And then you end up having a decrease in the muscle mass and atrophy of the muscle. As the cells turn over, the neuromuscular junction tends to repair itself and contractile function returns several weeks after treatment, and eventually you get back to pretreatment strength in about six months. So this is a safe, reasonable alternative to treat joint pains, and some people use it also to create a slimmer heart-shaped face, which people find aesthetically pleasing. Can you combine it with uh, mental injections of hyaluronic acid? You Actually, a lot of people do that to make that little heart-shaped pointy face. So they slim the jaw by doing the masseter injections with Botox, and then they enhance the point of the chin with the hyaluronic acid filler. You know, maybe if the hyaluronic actually does cause some dissolution of the bone, it's like a feature instead of a bug, because then you're giving yourself more, you know, business in the future, because they have even less volume there. Oh my goodness. Spoken like a non-cosmetic dermatologist. Yeah, that's funny. I did I did wonder about that though. I was like, could you use that on purpose? Like if you had an area of bone you kind of wanted to like thin down and I was like, 
No, Michelle, stop it. One of the things they pointed out in the previous article is they think that it happens to have the incisural fossa um, erosion because the cortex of the bone is thinner there than it is in the mandibular symphysis. So maybe a little unpredictable where you get the bony atrophy with those deep and um, high volume injections. Anyway, I digress. So when we go back to why macular hypertrophy can cause worsening of aging of the lower face, much of the aging of the lower face is attributable to bony resorption, fat repositioning, and decreasing collagen turnover. The lower face um, can be significantly impact, impacted by changes in the maxillary and mandibular bones, and those can be exacerbated by bruxism because of damage to the teeth, something called abfraction, which can be caused by grinding the teeth. Abfraction is a loss of tooth mass and damage at the gum line that can occur because of misaligned teeth grinding and erosion. And that can eventually lead to tooth loss, which can cause significant worsening of lower facial aesthetics. Master muscle hypertrophy can cause advanced dental attrition, as well as problems with um, temporal mandibular joint function. And so they wanted to look at that potential consideration. They also looked at the possibility that um, imbalance of the facial muscles can contribute to facial disharmony. So our facial muscles of mastication are the masseter, the temporalis, and the medial. Michelle, if you can hear me, we lost your volume. I think you may have hit mute. Okay. I did mute myself. Oops. When did you lose me? Uh, somewhere in the muscles that cause chewing discussion. Ah, okay. Well, let's just go back to that. So our muscles of mastication are the masseter, the temporalis, and the medial and lateral pterygoids. The masseter is the largest muscle, and inappropriate habits such as bruxism, as well as imbalances such as mandibular retrognathia, can cause masseter-type hypertrophy, and you end up with imbalance in those muscles. The masseter is innervated. Ding, ding, ding in the lower third of the muscle, uh, most richly by the marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve. So that is one of the little ways that we get that innervated. There's also some nice um, anatomical sort of review that happens here where they talk about the fact that you have, of course, the parotid gland um, superiorly, and then you also have a little bit of coverage of the posterior aspect of the masseter by the parotid gland. Sometimes they even extend all the way over the anterior 25% of the muscle. Anterior to the masseter, you have the facial artery and the facial vein, and then the parotid duct runs superficial to the masseter muscle and is typically located above an imaginary line that connects the insertion of the earlobe to the angle of the mouth. So usually it's a, it's a, the parotid duct is above that line. However, in about 37% of patients, the duct crosses that line, and in 18% of cases, it's on that line. So the safe injection point for patients you're treating for masseteric hypertrophy is below that imaginary line connecting the earlobe to the oral commissure. And then you palpate the border of the masseter, the anterior border. You want to go one centimeter posterior to that to avoid um, denervating the rhizorius, which could cause changes in facial expression, as well as to avoid damaging the facial nerve, the, sorry, the facial artery and vein or the parotid duct. Looks like you have to go kind of deep, too, to get it into the muscle compared to, like, your glabella and forehead and crow's feet stuff. Yeah, it does tend to be a deeper injection point. And what's interesting is they go through the history of figuring out how much Botox is needed here. Initially, they were using huge doses, 200 to 300 units of, um, of toxin, which is kind of a lot. Um, they found in some studies they were using 50 to 60 units of onobotulinum toxin A, which is a lot more than I use when I do this procedure. 
um, in some cases, this may be related again to population variance and and differences differentiation in jaw strength. In the Western studies, they tend to be lower amounts of Botox being used. So, how much do you use? I, in a woman, I will usually use between fifteen and twenty units per side. Um, in a man, I might use more if they have a lot of mu- muscle mass there and have significant symptoms from their bruxism. And in Flula, you'd use 500. In Flula, he would get the like three vials just each side, just bam, bam, bam. Um, they also talk about different injection techniques. Some people will use sort of an inverted triangle with the point of the inverted triangle being at the margin of the mandibula of the mandible and the kind of point of greatest thickness of the masseter. And then one centimeter above superior medially and superior laterally, but staying behind the anterior border of the muscle by one centimeter to avoid the rhizorius, the facial um, vein and artery, as well as the parotid duct. And then they talk about how long the treatment actually works and, and lasts. So they start to achieve improvement following the second week after injection. And this is what I tell patients when I'm doing any kind of Botox injection is that you need to wait two weeks to know for sure what it's going to do for you because it takes that long to really show up. What's interesting is that the muscle starts to regain its strength in three months, but the bulk of the muscle is still cosmetically benefited for up to six months and sometimes even longer. And they hypothesize that this might be because they're breaking the habit of bruxism and decreasing sort of that vicious cycle of a person having grinding of the teeth that causes more stress and then they continue to grind. They do show some very nice figures of people who've been treated with this um, technique to help provide a slimmer facial contour. And in these patients, I do agree that it gave a nice outcome. And they, I appreciated this, pointed out things that might cause poorer outcomes when you're doing this for cosmetic reasons. One of those being, and I've personally seen this not in a patient I've treated, but in a patient that's been treated elsewhere, that if the patient has lower facial laxity, so if a patient is, is over 50 or has significant lower facial atrophy or lower facial laxity, then if you denervate the masseter muscle, you're losing volume that's holding up part of the lower face. And so you might actually worsen jowls. And I've seen this personally. So you do have to be really thoughtful to consider which patients are appropriate for this particular part procedure. Because if you denervate somebody whose masseter is helping give volume, that's helping give them support to their lower face, and you remove that you can end up worsening the appearance of their jowls and decreasing the um, sort of contour you were hoping to achieve by slimming the face. You might actually end up paradoxically creating more of a squared looking face or even the dreaded upside, right side up triangle, which people don't want to have happen. So I thought that this gave a good review of where it's safe to use this. I think it gave a good review of how it works and also of which patients are not going to benefit as much from a cosmetic purpose. Now, if you're doing this to treat patients who have bruxism that's triggering migraines or patients that have bruxism that's damaging teeth or the temporomandibular joint, the cosmetics are a secondary consideration. But I think it was a nice review of this particular technique and good food for thought and good technical reference. So I'll put some pictures of where I inject in my pattern. I'll also show um, the Me Too app on this one because the My Too, sorry, app, not me too, that's something different. The My Too app and how it sort of also may play a role in the desire for this procedure. And pictures of Flula. <clears throat> and pictures of Flula. You got to have Flula. So today was like lower face with Michelle. Well, before we end up, or before we wrap up, I want to briefly touch on this one last article about how we don't have enough pediatric dermatologists. It was out of the journal Pediatric Dermatology and is called Geographic Distribution and Characteristics of the Pediatric Dermatology Workforce in the United States. The authors are 
Shivani Sinha and Hao Feng out of Quinnipiac University in Connecticut and the University of Connecticut. So this is a study that just looks at the demographics and geographic distribution of board-certified pediatric dermatologists in the United States, of which I am one. I am one of 336, it turns out. That's how many pediatric dermatologists there are in the U.S., which means I am 0.3% of the entire population. And that's just not enough, they say. Not enough to meet current demand, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better. Of course, we don't seem to have enough of anybody. I haven't really had anybody heard anyone say, you know what, we've got enough of this kind of doctor. We really don't really need any more. We just seem to need more of everybody. Interestingly, the majority of pediatric dermatologists, 77% are women. So look, I'm a white man and suddenly I'm a minority. <laughs> and the vast majority of pediatric dermatologists, 96% are based in urban areas, which of course is similar to the distribution for most physicians, I think, um, though 20% of U.S. children are rural. So if 20% of U.S. children are rural, but only 4% of pediatric dermatologists are, then there's definitely some underserved populations there. The average ratio of pediatric dermatologists is 0.46 per 100,000 children across the United States, with an average of 6.6 per state, though seven states have zero pediatric dermatologists. Oof. So if you're wondering which states have zero, there's a map here, and I'll have to rely on my knowledge of U.S. geography. Looks like it's Nevada, Montana, North and South Dakota, Maine, Delaware, and I think that's Alabama, just east of Louisiana. Does that sound right? That sounds about right. Mm. So no pediatric dermatologist in any of those places. <coughs> they don't really have a recommendation for the what ratio you're supposed to have for pediatric dermatologists, but apparently somebody recommends that the ratio of general dermatologists is four per 100,000 people. And right now we've got 0.46 pedsderms for 100,000 children, averaged across the United States. You want to guess which state has the most pediatric dermatologists? Mm, New York? No. Which one? California. You ah. probably would have got there, but it's not the highest uh, density. That one would actually be Washington, D.C., if that counts as a state, at 1.64 per 100,000, followed by New Hampshire, interestingly, at 1.52 per 100,000 children. So 30% of pediatric primary care visits include a cutaneous complaint, they say. That's quite a lot. And further, they say that pediatric residents and pediatric attendings maybe aren't so great at diagnosing dermatologic issues, so their diagnostic errors in dermatology have been reported to range from 80 to 90 percent perhaps due to limited dermatologic training in pcp residency programs they say so why is there a shortage of pediatric dermatologists well it's multifactorial we of course have fellowships and you have to do a dermatology residency to do a pediatric dermatology fellowship and over the past 10 years an average of 58 percent of fellowship positions were filled primarily due to a lack of applicants people just don't want to go into pediatric dermatology why? Well, a few reasons. They say maybe they had limited exposure to pediatric dermatology during their training. Maybe it's due to the competitiveness of matching into a dermatology residency, they say. I don't quite know what that means, because matching into pediatric dermatology is obviously not competitive, because 42% of slots go unfilled. So maybe... So I, again, I don't understand. Competitiveness of going into dermatology, why would that affect pediatric dermatology after that? But financial disincentives they mention, which I definitely get. Pediatric dermatologists, like all pediatric subspecialists, get paid less than our adult counterparts. 
though personally I consider that a feature rather than a bug, because it means all of my colleagues went into pediatric dermatology because they love it, not for the money. So I'm just working with a lot of happy people who love what they do. But still, the financial disincentives are real. Another interesting question is why are we, in general as physicians, so urban? And one thing I didn't think about is that apparently more than half of physicians have highly educated spouses whose job opportunities are generally located in urban areas. Hmm. Very interesting. So the shortage of pediatric dermatologists affects not just taking care of kids with skin disease, but also impedes the training of dermatology residents, primary care physicians, and also non-physician clinicians. So we could use more pediatric dermatologists. So if you're out there listening and you think you might want to be a pediatric dermatologist, um, the country needs you. And if you want to know where you should practice, hey, think about Utah. We're opening a new children's hospital in the Valley, and we could use two to three to four more pediatric dermatologists in our department. And thanks, of course, to the University of Utah for supporting this podcast. It is an awesome place to work. Thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. I'm sure Texas Tech wouldn't say no if a pediatric dermatology candidate was interested either. Oh, we would love to have a pediatric dermatology candidate. (laughs) And that, of course, is all we have time for today. So today we discussed JAK inhibitors and their use in alopecia areata. We discussed how hyaluronic acid, especially injected into the chin, might influence some resorption of bone. We talked about the ALT-70 model, which can predict whether somebody has lower extremity cellulitis or just something that looks like cellulitis. We talked about Botox and the masseter muscle for both cosmetic and medical purposes. And we talked about the pediatric dermatology workforce. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us today, guys. And please uh, send Michelle texts on her personal cell phone to keep her honest about all the things she claims that she will post to our social media. Yes, assuming she does so, you can find them perhaps on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And thanks to Ryan Carlisle, who keeps those humming along. He's applying to dermatology this year, so be on the lookout for his application. He is a great guy. And you can find our entire archive on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which is also a good way to get in touch with us. And it also has a link to our other podcast. Michelle, you want to tell them about SkinCast? Sure. So SkinCast is our other podcast, which is actually public facing. So this is a podcast for lay people who would like to learn how to take the very best care of the skin they're in. It's a much shorter podcast. It's only about 15 minutes, but it's us talking about our expertise in skin and hair and nail care and aim towards the person who just wants to learn more about how to take care of the skin they're in. And that's what we got for you today, guys. We will see you in two weeks.